0: Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Hey Light Church, my name is Chris Hilkin, And we are gonna continue in our study in the book of Mark. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those to Mark. It's the second gospel, the good news, the story of Jesus as told by a man named Mark. If you haven't watched last week's message yet from Benji, go back and watch that. He did an amazing job of introducing the idea of Mark and the context in which the whole gospel finds itself he kind of walked away with these three main points that Jesus is the subversive victor who wins in a way we didn't think he was going to. He's also the comforting shepherd and he's the resurrection life. And so inside of that context, we continue. What Benji kind of talked about is um, this discovery, this big question of, of who is Jesus. And it's, it's the most important thing that any human can ever do in life is to make sense of this particular character, this Jesus character. Because if what he says is false and what he says isn't real, then you're allowed to live your life basically however you want to. In other words, if what Jesus, if the claims that Jesus is not aren't, aren't, if they're not founded and rooted, then we have no reason to take it seriously. Then this book is just a series of fables and tales that we can throw out. But if this Jesus was God himself, then when we open the text, We're listening to the voice of God speaking to us, and it makes all the difference. And so Mark, in a lot of ways, he kind of puts Jesus on trial, and he gives us evidences. And and Benji talked about him being kind of the action-packed gospel, using the word immediately over and over again. And so we continue in the story. We watch Jesus entering into his ministry. Mark doesn't concern himself with the boring things that some of the other gospels do, right? Uh, Luke chapter 2 talks about the birth of Jesus. Mark doesn't care. Mark is going, he's jumping right in medius res, into the middle of the story. Matthew does a long genealogy because he's writing to the Jews that Jesus is the great fulfillment. But Mark is writing to a group of Romans, these group of people who are concerned with power and servitude and presenting Jesus as the suffering servant. And so we continue in Mark's gospel. Uh, Jesus was just tempted in the wilderness. Um, Verse 12, we'll start there before we pick up. At once, the Spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him. And here's where we pick up, okay? Uh, This is perhaps the most pregnant of sections of Mark's gospel, okay? On the surface, it's not that many words, it's two verses, it's 14 and 15, um, and continuing on the implications of the next two verses, but but with it you really could, you could do a 16 week study on just these two things because it's just packed with theological significance and response in our life. So here we jump in verse 14 After John was put in prison, this should should already cause a timeout for the Christian, okay? For the believer, what we find is this man named John. John is the one we read about previously. He's in the wilderness. He eats wild locusts and honey like you do. He has camel's hair all over his body. He's kind of this unkempt dude, and he's calling that there's this Jesus character coming. People confuse John with Jesus. Jesus, and John says, no, 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 no there's a there's a savior coming that i i can't even untie the guy's shoes that's how powerful and majestic and holy this god is and you're gonna see him coming and john sees it and 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 john finds himself in the middle of God's will he's pronouncing the coming king he's doing what he was called to do he's accomplishing the task that was set before him he finds himself smack dab in the middle of God's will he it, it doesn't the the text doesn't say that he strays to the left or to the right it doesn't say that he's caught in some um, egregious sin. It's that he is doing exactly what Jesus called him to do. And so we should already stop and go, wait, what? After John was put in prison, right? It doesn't, it, it kind of begs the question, if John's doing what he's supposed to do, he's accomplishing what he's supposed to accomplish, and he's in the middle of God's will. How can you do all those things and be in prison? And not like modern prison, where you've got a TV and three square meals. He's in he's in Roman jail, put there by a king named Herod, who was awful. The guy ends up uh, marrying his own niece, which is weird and gross, and and so he he marries his own niece, and then so it's kind of like the the messed up perverted king, finds himself in a position of victory, and the man of God, fulfilling the will of God, inside of the the tasks of God, is now in prison. Mark's already presenting a subversive savior, isn't he? This is what Benji talked about. They should always kind of confuse our senses and go, "What, what version of Jesus did I think I was getting? And so many of us, I think, and again, you might be listening to this as a non-believer. Maybe you're brand new to walking with Jesus, or you've been walking with him for many, many years. And wherever you find yourself, you will in your life pick up your head in moments and just go, wait, what? Excuse me, who are you? And and the way that we're born, we are born in this, uh, as Martin Luther said, we are curvatus in se. We are turned in on ourselves. We are Naval gazers is the word that he used for us. As human beings, we are innately uh, obsessed with our own selves. And so when we're presented with this idea of God, we kind of go, okay, so how does God fit into my realm? If I've got this orbit around who I am, and now you're going to convince me that there is this divine savior, there is this God of the universe, then how do I bring him into my orbit? And so we kind of allow him like a satellite to revolve around us and we go, well, this is great. I've got a divine protector, he orbits around, around me, he focuses on what I need, he gives me what I want, he accomplishes what I desire, and he responds to my prayers in a way that I would respond to my own prayers. And the quicker we can as human beings break that idea of who God is, the better off we're gonna be long-term. Said another way, if God continues to orbit your life, as some kind of accessory, come some kind of spiritual or ethereal accessory to my existence. If he just kind of exists to make sure that I'm healthy, wealthy, wise, and well-fed, and that he is like a supernatural genie there to rub the lamp and accomplish what I desire, you will find yourself walking away from him. And it's not really a question of if, it's a question of when. If the God of the Bible, if the God that you serve, the God that you claim to worship revolves around you to accomplish what you want to accomplish, you will become so disappointed, disenfranchised, disillusioned, and confused by him that you will come to a point where you will begin to rebel against him, to probably even hate him because just like the Jews, they expected a certain type of Messiah, a political king that would come and overthrow Rome. And what did they do when he decided he was going to do things differently? They said, crucify the guy. If you're not gonna fix our Rome problem, if we as as the Jewish community, our biggest problem we think is Rome and you orbit us, then when I point to Rome and say, Hosanna, that's what they proclaim when he walks into Jerusalem. Hosanna, save us now. They weren't saying, save me from me. They were saying, save me from Rome. And so when Jesus said, I didn't come to overthrow Rome yet. I didn't, I didn't come to free you from the oppression of a physical government of a procurator, and of Pontius, I didn't come to free you from that. I came to free you from the penalty of sin on your life. I came to free you from Genesis chapter three, the fall of mankind and the sin that is innate in our souls. And when the the religious elite found out that they were getting a different savior than they expected, they said, then put him to death. And we do the same thing. And I do the same thing. And so often in my life, I go, Jesus, just accomplish what I need you to accomplish and, and do what I need you to do. And when he doesn't, I am so quick to go, well, then what do I need you for? If you're not going to do what I need, then why would I follow you? Why would I serve you? Why would I worship you? And Jesus, from the very beginning of Mark, wants to shake the idea and ask the question, Am I your God now, even if I don't do what you want to do? And he's really asking the question, who orbits who? And in his gentleness and in his kindness and his love for us, he pulls himself out of our orbit and he begins the gospel by making us ask, wait a minute, could you perhaps be a different God than I thought you were? Could you perhaps have a different will than I thought you had? Could you in some cases be different than I have created you to be? As one famous theologian said, God made us in his image and we've been returning the favor ever since. God made us like him, in his image, and now we construct God to look like us. The Gospel of Mark, if you skip over that, you've got to stop and go, what is John the Baptist doing in prison? Is Jesus unaware of it? Nope, we find out later in the Gospel he was fully aware of it. Is God sleeping? Is God concerned with something else? Then why is his servant in jail? So we begin by having our conscience Uh, kind of teased and tantalized to start and go, so in the middle of God's will, I can also be in the middle of a jail cell? Moving on. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God the good news of God, the euangelion, the the two euangeliu Jesu Christu, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we might be expecting here, the good news might be, John, you're ready to come out of prisoner. Or John, it's it's time for you to be saved. Or here world, I have come to give you exactly what you want. And so he uses this phrase to begin verse 15. The time has come, the great fulfillment. So Jesus is marking not something strictly historical, because all of this is historical, He's marking something historic, something bigger, something in the Greek, uh, kairos, game-changing. From here on out, all of time will be severed in two. B.C. to A.D., the world will always look back at what's about to happen and make this great severance of all of human existence has come right now. The, the, the word here in the original language is is the, the two twofold. It's that a cup has been being filled since the beginning of time, and it now has reached the top. The brim is now overflowing, and the time has come. And so Mark is inviting his readers to lean in because Jesus is saying something really intense here. He says, you've been waiting for thousands and thousands of years for this particular moment. Could you imagine the bated breath of those around him? He's claiming to be God himself. Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word, and the word was, sorry, that was John chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens And the earth. Now, the earth was formless and void, and and the Spirit of God was moving over the, the, the surface of the deep and it was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. Jesus aligns himself with being that very creator. He says, Before Abraham was, I am. He claims to have the power to forgive sins, to bring dead things back to life. And now he says, The time has come to fulfill the good news of the kingdom of God. Don't you think the next thing that he says is going to be pretty important? He's saying this is the beginning of a new era in human history. we better pay attention to what he says next because it would seem like he's setting up perhaps the most important idea of his whole existence, of his whole reason for becoming man. The time has come. Lean in. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near. This is the time that has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And he's speaking about himself. Jesus in ushering, in saying, the kingdom of God is here, he's really saying, I am here. I am the kingdom of God. I am the new way of living. I am the citizenship now of people who follow me are found in those who respond to my voice and listen to my commands and, and, and love me as I love them. The kingdom of God is at hand, and that means twofold. The first one, when we talk about something being at hand, it can represent a time at hand, right? Um, the, the time to go to the wedding is at hand, right? It means it has come. It is now chronologically time. But Jesus is also saying something else. He's talking about proximity. The kingdom of God is now touchable, reachable, tangible, feelable, holdable, graspable, and to a Jewish community that always considered God to be far off, to be, to be spirit, to be there, Jesus said, you can now touch me. You can reach me, and I'm in your presence. The kingdom of God is at hand. And here's the point. Here is his big call. And this the next word that we're going to read is the first thing that John the Baptist says. It's the first word that Peter says in his public ministry. And it's going to be the first word that Jesus says in his ministry. And that's kind of where we're going to make our home is this next word. Repent. This is Jesus' big call. The new era of human history has come. Everyone lean in. I got something to tell you. This is important because the kingdom of God is both here and at hand. It is near you. It is time. Lean in. Here comes the big crescendo moment. Everything. The symbol swells. Shh. Drum roll, please. <laughs> Repent and believe the good news. If you you love to talk about the love of God, if you love to talk about the mercy of God, if you love to talk about the justice of God, if you love to talk about the will of God, if you love to talk about the plan of God, any character of God that you like to talk about, any characteristic of Jesus is completely foiled if you don't understand what he means when he says the word repent. If we don't accurately understand what he's calling us to in his very first call, then we're going to miss everything else about who he is. We're going to miss every, and it's all going to fall through the cracks. We're going to miss the main point of who he is. He says, repent and believe the good news. That word repent in the Greek is this word metanoia, which is kind of two parts. Meta means to change. Think like metamorphosis, to change your very nature. A, a caterpillar, after being in the cocoon, metamorphosizes into a butterfly. So that word means to change. And noia or noye is the idea of changing your mind. So Jesus actually calls, he says, if you want to know what it means to be in the kingdom of God, it starts with this repent, change your mind. Alter the way that you think. And when we alter it, we think it alters the way we live. It alters the character that we have. It alters the thing that we say yes to, that we say no to. It alters the importance of who we are. It alters everything. Imagine someone who finds out they're going to be a dad. Someone who who finds out a, a a mom who takes a pregnancy test for the first time and finds out she's going to be a mom. Just the knowledge. I mean, she's not holding a baby. She may not even be aware, except for the pregnancy test, that there is life now inside of her. But you better believe that a shift is happening upstairs. The decisions that they make, what they say yes to and no to, where they go, what they eat, what she drinks, it can all be altered just by a changing of the mind. And what he's calling, I think, more than anything to is he's saying, I'm going to be, it's what Benji said, I'm going to be subversive to your natural way of thinking. You're going to put me in a box, okay? Okay. You're going to think that I'm a certain way. You're going to assume that because we are naval gazers, cravatists and say, and we're obsessed with ourselves, you're going to think that I've come for something very different than I've come for. And if you don't switch your mind and change your way of thinking and think that you're not the king, but that I'm the king, if you refuse to metanoia, if you refuse to change your mind, you will categorically not be able to follow me. You won't. Because it could be said like this, the throne of our lives is big enough for one person and Jesus is not willing to share. Jesus seems very willing in scripture to let you be your own king. Now in love and and petition and pleading and gentleness and kindness and loving kindness, Jesus calls us and he says, let me be the king of your life because you're a bad king and I'm a good one. But make no mistake, Jesus is not here to share the throne of our life. He's not here to to have one cheek on and one cheek off for us to share and for me to make calls and for him to make calls. It is is a call for kingship. It's a call for total submission. It's Jesus, you are God and I am not. Repent. Have a change of mind. Completely undo. Uh, For a a strong military presence here in North County, the the idea would be to, to turn about face. It's to take where you are and to use one step and to turn around and go back the other direction. It is to adjust everything about who you are. Um, I have five kids, which is entirely too many, but we have a lot of fun. My son, Brady, has a, a blanket that he sleeps with. It's like his comfort, it is, um, we used to re- reference it as his uh, the brown one. So someone would come into our house and go, which blanket is Brady need to sleep? And I would always say, the brown one. And so Brady now affectionately, even as a four-year old, calls it the brown one blanket. So he always needs his brown one blanket. If we're in the car on a car trip if we're anywhere else, he needs his brown one blanket. It is his safety net. It is his comfort, it is his peace. It is something that just brings him calm and brings him that sense of security. And I think over the, the centuries, from Jonathan Edwards to other great men of faith who, who preached the gospel, who preached the good news, um, but maybe like through like the Puritan era of Christianity, this word has come to mean something uh, offensive, right? It's the it's the guy that stands in the street corner and might have all the love in his heart, but it just comes across. It's it's not the lyrics of what he's saying; it's the music of what he's saying. Does that make sense? He might be saying something beautiful, which is to repent and turn to God. But when you have a bullhorn and you're screaming in someone's ear, repent. All they hear is that word repentance. And that word repent becomes synonymous with hate or synonymous with judgment or synonymous with um, some kind of painstaking, laborious, uh, legalistic response to a judgmental God, right? And I think if we're, if we're good and we're, and we're paying attention and we're becoming good theologians and we're listening to the word as it's supposed to be understood, this word repent should feel like a security blanket for us. It, it, sh- it should be the crux of Jesus's love for us. Because our life is too messed up and our natural way of thinking is too messed up for a loving shepherd to look at his sheep with a wrong way of viewing life, with a wrong way of understanding self, with the wrong person in orbit. If God doesn't call us to change our mind, then we're in for the worst possible and imaginable fate. You see, it's the, it's, the, it's the love of Jesus that calls us to repentance. And what does that mean? And, and let me give you an example just from my own life and um, where this has been so important. And that's, and, and it's the reason that I, that I think it's important for us as a, as a faith community. Um, on March 24th of last year, my fifth kid was born. Her name's Finley, and she's wonderful. And my wife started to have this weird back pain and pain. We went to the hospital, and she got diagnosed with a pulmonary embolism, and it almost it almost killed her. And, and so you just kind of sit there and you go like, "This is the natural orbit." Talking, God, how could you, how could you allow this to happen? Right? Like, we're trying to raise our our kids in faith. Uh, I'm a pastor. I I teach for a living. My wife is. Um, she's daily ministering. She's leading a small group of girls. She's passionate about your word. she's she's sharing the gospel with people that she knows. Like how could you let this something so close? how could you how could you even have an instance where she almost died? Like just take the pulmonary embolism away and something happened when she got diagnosed with that pulmonary embolism where she became afraid of dying so intensely that she just stopped sleeping. And for ten days straight, my wife stopped sleeping. And when that happened, um, she began to get checked out for trauma. The trauma of not sleeping for ten days is pretty intense, and so she went to a mental health facility, and they kind of uh, went through these different tests. And they basically told me, "They're like, sir, your your wife, your wife's brain is responding like someone who's been in a really bad car accident or who's been in war for a long time." And um, as such. Uh, she just isn't really herself she's not making a lot of sense she's um afraid of everything and my wife who's i mean we're talking my wife is like a powerhouse like started four businesses had five kids in 6 years homeschooled the kids like she just crushes like when i used to stand next to her i would you know kind of like shake a little bit because it was it was like i was i was always around someone that i just had this deep and profound respect for. And I just honor her and I love her. And, um, and so her brain got sick and she started to experience, um, psychosis and schizophrenia and her brain started to fail her. And, it just got really scary, and and as that happens, what you find is that your natural sin state, your natural way of thinking about God as cosmic genie kicks in, and and I would find myself like just kind of screaming at God, like just leave me alone, like do if you're the great comforter, like I, I I read it all over this, if you're the great comforter, then do something. You're in my orbit, and I'm calling you to it, and I mean, there's not only a few passages that talk about God intervening or God doing something or or God loving and caring for us or wanting what's best for us. And so it was like, just do something. Anything. Just give me my wife back. I'm not asking for a ton. I, I'm like, I'm not, this isn't a prayer for a million dollars or a Lamborghini or, you know, like a, a big house, beachfront house. Like, I'm just, I, How much simpler, just let my wife be my wife again, like take this mental illness away from her, like fix it, change it. And you know what we're gonna do with it? We will become a a couple that walks around and talks about the, the importance of mental health for people in the faith community. And we will bring great awareness to the idea that that even those of us who are in Christ can struggle with these things. Let me be an advocate for that. Just, just make her better so we can start that. And, and my wife's gonna become this powerhouse, even in the faith community, to come and bring awareness to these things. Just, We're not, I mean, it, sure, it's selfish, but because I wanna have my wife back, but, but I also think we can use it for you. Like, you can be glorified in it. So if you will accomplish my will, if you'll find yourself in the middle of my will, God, I think we can really do something great together. I shouldn't get better. And it just got to a point where it, it was like the parable of treasure in the field where I was just willing to give anything. So she went to a mental health facility in, in Tucson, Arizona. And it was like, man, I, I don't care what this costs. I just want you to give me my wife back. And a few days after being in that facility, she took her own life. And you get a call that morning from the clinic and they just tell you, sir, your, your, husband, your, your wife has committed suicide. And you just go like, I, I, I understand the English language, so I, I get what you just said, but I also don't. Did you just tell me like I'm a single dad of five kids? Like did you? Did you just tell me that, like my best friend and the my beloved, the richer or sickness and health I do, that my wife is gone? Like, there's just, there's not, I, I just feel like there's not enough Bible that you can study to still not be prepared in that moment just to go, are you, are you serious? And then and then to look at, 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 at to try to figure out like, I'm not gonna try to tell my five kids that their mom committed suicide, like what? I don't care how much seminary you go to, when you have to walk downstairs and look into your six-year-old's eyes and tell him that his mom, not just that she died, not of some accident, but that it was that it was suicide. And and again, you, you have to explain mental health and that she wasn't in her right mind and that it was almost that someone did this to her. You try to go through all those things, and but a six-year-old doesn't, doesn't get the the nuance of mental health. They don't. And he just I was like so scared, you know. Like what are we going to do? And it and it kind of felt like this. It's like you're you're you've got this Jesus and he walks alongside you, and then you've got this idea of here he is being put here's John is being put in prison, and here's this idea of of Jesus walking through. The time has now come, and I've come to bring uh, what does Isaiah sixty one say? A freedom for the oppressed, and 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 help for the brokenhearted, and and a, and a, and, a, and a, I'm going to be a father for the orphan. And then you sit in this middle of this and go. Then do then then what it, then then help me make sense of this. Like if this is why if the kingdom of God is not just time wise here, but you're you're at hand, and and I and I'm praying and I'm fasting, and I'm calling for you to intervene, and you don't do it. Now I've got this situation in my hand where I lost my wife. Like what in the how am I supposed to make sense of this? And and, and that's why I think for so many of us, there's this there's this calling of Jesus to say, if you don't metanoia, if you don't switch who is God and who is not, then when you go through the junk of life, when you go through the dumpster fire of the life that you're gonna live in your sin and in the sin of this world and the brokenness of the human condition and in the tragedy of these moments and the loss of life and in the cancer coming back and in the miscarriages and the infertility and the betrayal and the adultery and the suicide and all, if you don't really know who I am, if you don't do the hard work of figuring out who Jesus actually is when the moment comes for you to put Jesus on trial in your very own heart in the middle of your circumstances, in the middle of your trials, in the middle of your tragedy. Our natural response is to just kick him out of our orbit and to say, you didn't come through. You didn't come through for me. My will wasn't done and therefore I don't really want anything to do with you. And I remember just like sitting on the floor of my my son's room, that's where I took the phone call, just like in a a puddle of myself, just thinking, what do I do now? And and I'm I'm not teaching to you as someone on the other side of doubt or on the other side of of pain, on the other side of grief, who's like, and now I have arrived and I come back to tell you. No, I just, I, I sit in a wrestling match with Jesus even to this day and go, just teach me how to rectify these two things in my mind how are you the loving and gentle god and yet my wife is gone and it, and it, and and that's why i see the word repentance almost like this warm blanket of love and not this judgmental inaffectionate uh, call of judgment it's because if you don't change your mind and you don't fix and and switch places with who you think is king in your life then when tragedy hits Instead of you going, not my will, but yours be done. Not my future, but yours be completed. Not my kingdom come, but your kingdom come. If you don't switch your brain and go from being a navel gazer to a cross gazer, that just says, my life is is an offering poured out to you. It's signing your name on a contract with no verbiage at the top of it. You just sign your name and then push it across the table and say, Jesus, you sign, you fill in what you want. Then the, I'm not negotiating with you anymore. I want my life to be a, an offering poured out for you, like like a, like the like the woman in the New Testament who spends all she has buying this fragrant this fragrant perfume and just pours it out. Just make my life like that. It doesn't mean you don't wrestle. It doesn't mean you don't hurt. It doesn't mean you don't weep. It doesn't mean that like it's not. It doesn't mean it's not confusing but I have found on the other side of this tragedy a love deeper with Jesus than I could have ever imagined. And in that total surrender, I've experienced a profound comforter in Jesus that I never would have understood before. And, and, I, and I can now recognize the idolatries of my heart previously to all of these things. And I know there's still idolatry in my heart and and I love how one theologian put it. He says, idolatry is the folly of confusing. Or the idolatry is the folly of asking the gift to be the giver instead. It's the folly of looking at Jesus not as the gift of my life but as the giver of the gifts of my life. It's it's to ask Jesus to give me something other than himself. It is it is not that Jesus would come more near to me but that he would come closer so that I can hear what I want from him. It's not that I want more of Jesus. It's not I more I want more of the things that Jesus can give me. And when you sit on the floor, when all of your world has been brought down to nothing and and the very core of who you are is ripped out and your identity has been shaken and your idea and view of who God is, is taken down to its studs, what then can be rebuilt is a new picture of Jesus. It's a metanoia. It's a complete changing of the mind. And, And I really do believe that this should be looked at as the greatest gift that God could ever give me because I know that he is good and I know know that his ways are not my ways and I know that his thoughts are not my thoughts, Isaiah 55 verse eight and nine says, but I just never believed it. And if we don't surrender to that being the truth of our life, then when tragedy hits and pain strikes and miscarriage happens and infertility rears its ugly head and betrayal and all, we will simply look at the gift of Jesus And throw him out for not being a giver of good things to us. And the problem really comes in when we try to qualify what are good things. Jesus says in the New Testament, he says, nothing is good but God alone. It's Mark chapter 10. Which means when we ask Jesus for good things, biblically speaking, what we're asking him for is more of himself. But that's not what we think of, is it? When I go, God, give me good things, I think money, I think power, I think influence, I think cars, I think houses, I think um, divine favor, I think job opportunities, I think getting into the school, I think um, uh, reconciliation with people. This is what I think. I go, God, give me these good things, and yet we got to use Jesus' dictionary, which is when we ask him to give us good things, he's always going to give us more of himself. As C.S. Lewis puts it, there is no there's no intelligence. There's, there's no common sense in asking for us, for God to give us something rather than himself for our completion and for our security because he alone can secure. He alone is our identity. He alone can provide. So when we ask God for the gift of a job and we're really asking for the security of feeling safe, Jesus extends himself instead. Don't you see the beauty and the love wrapped up in this word then? It's as if Jesus is saying to me, Chris, I got, you got to change your mind because if your mind is that you are the king and if your mind is that you are all supreme and if your mind is that I just exist to serve you and if your mind is that I have come to free you from all the oppressions of life or if I've come to make your life easy simple and if I've come to make you healthy wealthy and wise if you think that then you are going to throw me out like a baby with the bathwater, and you're not going to follow me because when the junk of your life hits you are not going to know what to make of a God who serves you but doesn't give you what you want it's not going to make sense to you would you please Change your mind, and, and it's not changing your mind for its own sake, it's because John 17 tells us that more than anything, Jesus wants all people to be saved. And one of the most dangerous things that keeps people from salvation and keeps people from Jesus is, I am God and He is not, I am King and He serves me. And Jesus says, If you think that way, you will not finish your life in my kingdom because there are not two thrones, there is only one throne, and either I occupy it or you occupy it, but we don't both. And I rest in simple truths that if if Jesus came back from the dead, then I'm going to see my wife again in heaven in her glory, that she exists right now in no more pain and, and no more mental distress, and she's no longer confused about who she is. I talked to her on the phone the day before she took her own life, and she articulated the gospel to me so clearly. And those are like the really, really simple life gifts that God gives me. And I see his beauty and his character in the middle of it all. And it's not that I don't wrestle with God. It's the, it's the idea that wrestling with God takes place in the arms of your Savior still. And a wrestling with someone means that you're still being held by them. And that's how I feel right now. A 33-year-old single dad of five wrestling with my God. And I couldn't be more in love with him. And I couldn't be more... There couldn't be a greater struggle with understanding exactly what that means. But like John chapter 6 verse 66 says, where else would I go at, at this point? He has been faithful to be there for me and for sure my ways are not his ways. But how many of us actually believe that when the junk of our life happens? And that's the beautiful moment where the theology that you might believe becomes a conviction that you have to live out and only by the grace of God. This is not some heroic tale of my faithfulness. It is a, it is a, it is a man's small, insignificant, dumpster fire faith in a great God. You see, the, the, the palpability, the, the profoundness, the, the strength of our faith is not in how much of it I have, but in how great of the thing is that I put my faith into. You see, I might, I might see like a, a board between a canyon, and it might be razor thin, incapable of holding any more than a bird landing on it. But I might, because I'm, I'm confused, I might have all the faith. I might be able to tell you with firm conviction, that thing will hold me. That thing will do the trick, and I can have all the faith in the world that it's gonna do it. But if the thing that I have faith in isn't strong, it isn't secure, it isn't divine, it isn't supreme, then I can just have a really, really deep conviction about what is going to fail me. Conversely, if I have a perfectly sound bridge built across the canyon that has proven itself time and time again in its faithfulness through thousands of pages of this love story built for us, I can close my eyes And I can be knees shaking the whole way across that bridge, confused about whether or not this thing is going to hold me. But every step that I take in faith, you might go, well, that guy is a lot less faith-filled than that guy is who really thinks that small stick is going to hold him, but it doesn't matter because it's not about the faith of the man. It's not about the faith of the woman. It's about the strength of the bridge. It's not about the, the faith of the believer. It's about the goodness and the greatness of the God that you have your faith into. This is not the story of some heroic moron. This is a story of a guy who found himself with nothing else in life, except a firm conviction that this God is my only comfort. And so I want us to kind of walk away from here and realize two things: there is no such thing as a love of God without His call to repentance. Because without turning away from ourselves and turning back towards Jesus, you will never have a life that fulfills. You'll never have an identity that makes any sense, and you will chase your heart is an idol factory and you will chase the gifts of life without ever looking at the giver and responding to him. You see, God is much more concerned of what he's making us into than what we're accomplishing. Repent and believe the good news. Those are like conjoined twins. When one is sick, the other one is not well. There's two things there, but it's really just one thing. It's to have complete faith in Jesus. The call to follow Jesus is simply this. Believe in who Christ is, that he was raised from the dead, and he paid the price on the cross on your behalf. That will absolutely come with repentance. Repentance and faith are like conjoined twins. They always, always go together. Repent and believe the good news. Don't you love? Right after that, right after this, really confusing. It, it is. It's 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 innately confusing. John, if you don't know the story, I don't mean to ruin it for you, but Herod uh, is married to his niece. He says, I'm not going to kill John because John kind of freaks me out. John the Baptist, he's a weird dude. He wears camel's hair, but he seems to have this firm conviction that he is the one who's going to usher in Jesus. And he, he, he's really smart and he seems to be walking with God. And I don't want to mess that relationship up, so I'm not going to kill him. Well, then his niece's daughter, Herodias' daughter, comes and does this like dance for him. And he's so aroused by it that he says, I will give you whatever you want. And so Herodias says, well, then I want you to kill John. I want you to give me his head on a platter and he does. There isn't some story of then Herod walked in with a big knife and aimed to cut off John's head, but a big steel beam was in the way and he could not lop off his head. No, it says that he came in to his prison cell where, where John is in the middle of God's will. He gets his head lopped off and served in a silver platter to a perverted king that is oppressing God's people. And you got to go, wait, what? But at some point in her life, and this is the call of Jesus, It's the next verse. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. (laughs) Hey, you see John, he's in the prison. He's gonna get beheaded. Do you see that this doesn't really make sense? You see that my time has come and yet my people are still oppressed. Do you understand that I've come for a different reason than you thought? Are you willing to turn and change your mind and realize that I'm a different savior and I'm a different Jesus than you thought I was? Then you're ready to follow me. And there's not a single person that follows him that won't, be, that won't have their idol shaken in their life. Every one of these disciples will come up to this conclusion at one point where they have to see Jesus face to face and go, am I going to follow you because you are the gift? Or am I going to abandon you because I just saw you as the giver of other gifts? And in Jesus's crucifixion, all disciples walk away from him. One denies, one runs away, one betrays him, but they all find themselves cowering in a room because once again, they find themselves thinking, you're not the Jesus that we thought you were. A dead Jesus is not a Jesus that we thought was going to happen. And so we're, we're out again. And beloved friends, when that happens in your life, the question is going to be simple. What do you do with, with this Jesus? And the, the comfort blanket, the gentleness and the love of Jesus presents to us a word that has become so pregnant over the years and so meaningful in terms of judgment. But what he really says, almost like a father talking to his kid, I need you to first change your mind about who I am and that will automatically change your mind about who you are. And if you'll do those two things, you will become bulletproof to the pain of this world not that it won't hurt you, but that it won't take you away from me. It won't It won't change the way that you respond to me in those moments. You won't throw me out because you will realize I have not come to serve you as a king. I have come as a king to surrender my life, that you would know me, love me, and serve me. And so would all of us in the middle of whatever you're going through, and you guys, I don't know. There's like, this world is so messed up. And, and, and I'm sure so many of you had things taken away or you're struggling with mental health or suicidal thoughts. Or you've got people in your family who've committed suicide or you've, you're just like in the middle of it. Like I, When you look at the picture of Jesus in the New Testament, he like cries all the time. He's weeping all the time because he sees your pain and he sees my pain and he does these things. But we've got a God who loves us enough to say, would you please change your mind? Would you repent and believe the good news? that this life is a lot, it's very painful, but that I am the resurrection and the life. I have promised a new beginning, a new creation, a new world where there is no pain, there is no sadness there. I will wipe every tear away from your eyes. And when Jesus came back from the dead, he proved he's got the power to make dead things live again. And that's gonna be you and me. But if we want to, as Paul says, finish the race in Christ, we have to first begin by changing our mind. And that is if if you don't follow Jesus, and you're confused about who he is, he's calling you first and foremost to repentance, to turn away from your old way. And that's, repentance is twofold, to turn from something and then turn to something. In the same way, if I said, I'm going to New York today, I would have to first leave San Diego and then go to New York. To repent is to turn from what you used to be and believe the good news. And that's going in a new direction, to turn about face, to change our mind, that God might metamorphosize us from the old self into the new self. This isn't, a sermon from the mountaintop. This isn't a sermon of someone who's got it figured out, who's not struggling or wrestling. This is someone in the middle of their fight saying, I have found a Jesus that I've never been more in love with and who's never felt so real to me. And we're going to wrestle through this thing together. But I do know one thing, little of life makes sense with Jesus, but far less makes sense without him. And I can't wait for the day that I get to be in heaven and see my beloved in her glory and and that we can all experience together what it will be like to not be in pain and struggle and, and the fight, and we'll see everything with clarity. As first as First Corinthians says, we see everything in a mirror now, and it's confusing to us, but one day we'll see God face to face, and I think we'll all go at the, on that day, oh, you are so good. Would you pray with me as we close? Jesus, just come into our our thoughts and our minds and change us from the inside out, fix our way of thinking and align us to become more like you, knowing that seeing the world as you do is the only way to become truly bulletproof, not that we won't experience pain, but that we will crawl closer to you and we will limp closer to you in the middle of it. For you are a God who saves, you are a God who loves us, you are a God like a father who leans in, who cries beside us, who sees our tragedy and weeps alongside of us. But you also always point us to the cross, because we are forgiven into eternity, because we are destined to be with you. In name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.